Galatians 4 verse 1, you will see that it starts with what I am saying is. So we need to read a little bit before that to actually pick up thread um, of that. So we're just going to, for the sake of time and whatever, make it verse 26 of chapter 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. That's not necessarily the water baptism of identifying with Christ. It means we've actually immersed ourselves into the whole truth about Jesus Christ. We've got into it. We're now in it, and we live in it. So it's being baptized into it. Baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ, and and Paul very often uses the, the metaphor of clothing, a garment, to signify what we've done. So we take on Christ and we say, you know, in a positive step, we've put it on for the particular reason, and the particular reason is, is life and future and, and godliness and whatever. We've taken on Christ. Verse 29, if you belong to Jesus Christ, the assumption is that not everyone does belong to Jesus Christ. That's a good question to ask. Do I actually belong? Have I really given my life to Christ? If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, that's an indicating the virgin birth of Christ, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Not always a difficult, sometimes a difficult concept to understand what hearts means, but it's God sent the spirit to us personally in our lives in every area, right from the center of our beings outwards. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So really saying is God's given us the deposit of his spirit and there's something in us which now wants to reach out from the inside of our lives with a power and a searching after God in a unique and wonderful way, which is the fatherhood of God. So we're now related to God as father, an amazing thing which Jesus has done for us. In verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back? 
to those weak and miserable principles? Do, do, you wish to, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years, and I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, even though my illness was a trial to you. You did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you were welcomed, welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? Does anybody feel like that this morning? Having once experienced the joy in Jesus Christ, it doesn't seem to be there at the moment or any longer. What has happened to it? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people, the false teachers, are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. And to be so always, and not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. Father, thank you so much for your words. Would you, Holy Spirit, just help us to apply an age-old problem into a present-day situation and an understanding for us? By the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Let's do a little survey. So who actually hates cucumbers? No, no one hates a cucumber. How come? Anybody will eat it if it's put in front of you. Yes, well, if you don't hate it, then you probably would. Is there anybody that really likes cucumber? Oh, Steve Frost has put his hand up. You see, he's not only a, he's not only a carnivore, he's a bit of a vegetarian as well. And that's an amazing thing, to, isn't it, eh? A cucumber. Now, a cucumber is not terribly attractive, is it, now? It's like our title this morning, Anguish of the Gospel. Anguish of the Gospel. A bit like a cucumber, really. You know, it's not that appealing sometimes. Sometimes our titles aren't appealing. And so we have to realise why. I mean, I didn't choose the title. Someone else chose it. Um, and so, but it's our title for this morning's message. And so we need to look at it. Um, anguish of the Gospel. You know, if we haven't picked up yet or noticed Paul's frustration with both the false teachers and the young Christians at Galatia, we're actually missing the point. I'm not quite sure how any of us would react to a similar barrage of communication, whether by letter or within preaching. However frustrated we as elders here might become with any brother or sister within this church, I would become very nervous at the thought of using similar language to that of Paul's. 
So we need to understand the title of today's message, Anguish of the Gospel. In fact, people are quite happily walk out of a, a Christian service if the preacher gets to pressurizes people too much or pushes them beyond. And, so, and yet Paul's here, his whole attitude is almost offensive, but it isn't. It's almost an offense, but it isn't. And it's all because anguish that he has in his spirit. He knows what the wonder of the gospel is, knowing Jesus Christ. He knows what the power of it is. He knows that it's exciting and the best thing in the world, the best thing since sliced bread, we might say, but that's just such a poor illustration, isn't it? To know Jesus Christ is the most wonderful thing in this world and the most powerful the more we grow into Christ, a wonderful thing. So Paul has in his heart this anguish. He's really upset at this almost coup d'etat that's gone on. To take over, you know, a small group of people, establishment, a small group, we represent the establishment, and this is all wrong. You need to do the things which Jews have always done. You need to obey these rules and observe these days. You need to do these things in order to be a real Christian. And Paul says, no. All you need to do is to trust in Jesus Christ. This coup d'etat failed. That's why we're here today. No one took over, and the power of the gospel broke through generations, years, kingdoms. It broke through wars so that we've got it today. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. The reign of Jesus Christ is forever. And so Paul has anguish in his heart. So where does this thought, this anguish come from? Um, apart from the words previously used, um, so let's just look in, in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one, that's deserting Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 8, he speaks to the false teachers and says, let them be eternally condemned. In chapter 2, verse 11, when Peter came, he says, I opposed him to his face. Chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Chapter 3, verse 3, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to go it alone? These false teachers were trying to introduce these new Christians to a DIY job, you know? And there's no DIY job for Christians. It's all been done by Jesus perfectly and completely no diy job have a go joe wrestle with a lifeless dummy play football with a lead balloon or entering a grand prix with a car that doesn't even have an engine that's what paul was saying it's like this wrestling with a lifeless dummy if someone goes in to wrestle they go in to wrestle with someone who's on the same basis them with equal strength and he says, you're putting your energy into something which has no value. The only thing that matters is Jesus Christ. And so the anguish comes from this, and we can see it in the language that Paul used. You know, the Bible tells us of God who in anguish looked at his world. 
Genesis 6, verse 6. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. It was probably not a very good thing to hear. But the verse goes on to say this. And his heart was filled with pain. And his heart was filled with pain. That's what we read about God. He said, I'm sorry that I've made man. He's messed it all up. That would be a bad enough situation. But it said his heart was filled with pain. And so we have to understand that Paul so loved Jesus and he was so captured by what Jesus had done and what he was going to do. He was so in love with Jesus that his heart was filled with pain as he wrote to these people at Galatia. Sometimes it becomes on elders that their hearts are actually filled with pain for the people that they serve, pastors and teachers. And say, well, why, why don't they see it? And that's a frustrating point sometimes. But we can't necessarily use the same language as Paul did because it would sort of most drive people away. But the anguish is in his heart and we hear it in his words. And so our title stands good, doesn't it? Paul had pain in his heart for the people that he served. Not only do we see that about God, but Jesus said these words. Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how often, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers the chicks under her wing, but you wouldn't come, you weren't willing. It's the anguish of what God has in store for those who love him. The anguish of what we could receive from God to know him, to know his life eternal. And as Jesus came to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. As they crucified him, they don't know what they're doing. Today we live in the blessing of knowing what Jesus did. And the anguish he went through for us. And Paul takes that on. Are oh, you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, you are now trying to go it alone. Create your own world and to do it your own way. Now in chapter 4 here, if you go down to the end of the reading we had, verse 9. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I does that particularly applies to us in every detail of that, but it was almost that they were going back to something because he was talking to Jewish people and Gentiles and the Jewish people were trying to get the Gentiles to do what they said was right and to observe the days and everything a way of creating their own DIY job, you know, have a go Joe, do it yourself you know, try and maintain it by the effort that you put into it 
which we can't do. Why go back, he said? Why are you turning back? If we look at our lives, I mean, I, I keep asking myself the question, what's the difference in my life at this time last year and now? Have, have I actually grown as a Christian since then? Have I actually learned something new since last year? Have I turned back in any way? But you see, the underlying message of this whole letter is you were started off so well, but now you've actually turned back. And that's the point that I just want to pick up with us this morning. It's the point of going back and not going forward. The point of I don't think we should ever go back to the Jewish ways of observing their days, their months and their calendars or whatever that may be. But there are things in our life that, that take us off and turn us back. There are things in life that cause us to be disheartened and to stop following Christ in the way that we really want to. There are things that get in the way. There are things that take over. There are things that stop us, that stop us receiving the glory of the gospel within our lives, the glory of what Christ has done for you. So Paul defends the anguish in his heart by the words he uses. He says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? That would probably be the plea from any preacher or pastor who wants to share Jesus in the way that they know him. Don't become an enemy. Don't take offence. Don't put it down. Because the anguish is in their heart for the love of God and Jesus and for the people which they serve. Just go down to verse 19 and 20. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. Paul uses a phrase here in verse 90. He says, I'm again in the pains of childbirth. And this is the phrase, until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you. The whole goal of the gospel is that we are brought into the family of God, into a perfect union and relationship with him, to love him, to serve him, to get excited about God, and to enjoy God, to enjoy him, to enjoy him. And he said, I'm again in pains until Christ is formed in you. That's where he's going. That's what he knows about. He knows who Christ is and he knows how he can become the source of their happiness, the source of their joy, the fulfillment of their lives, their hope of glory. It all comes back to Jesus. Beholding him, looking at him, seeing who he is and what he's done for us. So with this newfound faith in Jesus Christ, we're introduced to a life which is naturally born to progression. He said, you're turning back, you're trying to take on something new, but it's not going to get you anywhere. The Christian is born to progression. You know, 
when Sarah and Ivan have their baby, they'll get very worried if it doesn't grow. You know, if it doesn't start making noises, actually. You know, within the context of a church, it's good when people start making noises, singing the praises of God, praying to God, and calling out his name. The noises that come from the people. That's progression. When we become a Christian, we want to shout it out. We want to talk it out. We want to say it out. We have something here we want to let go. So the baby makes noises. And after the noises, they become words. And as we grow as a Christian, it's the understanding we start putting words into place. You know? And then start putting the words together. And then the sentences... And the sentences come, but the understanding doesn't always come. You know if you've had children, how they grow up. But we're so concerned about the development of our children, the same applies to Christians. We are born to grow. We are born to grow. And I mentioned the cucumber. It starts off and growth is slow, then all of a sudden it gets quicker, quicker, quicker. You have to nip the top out. Or something like that. But the growth is there, the development. And that's what Paul desires until Christ is formed in you. Weight increase for our babies, size, strength, perception, understanding, speech. The whole family environment of the child is vital to its growth in the womb and after birth. This growth is so important born to grow how I wish I could be with you to help you grow Paul was saying to help you grow and so that was his anguish that was his heart for the people you stop going forward worse than that you take on weak and miserable principles to go backwards and that forced them into a degenerative state spiritually so, stuff with no life and power and authority. Stuff that causes doubts and uncertainty. An unhealthy dwelling on regrets and the ifs onlys in my life. I just want to highlight those things. You know... Paul was trying to stop these people going back to where they were. He wanted them to be certain about what they'd done and they wanted to live a life where they were certain about the future. When we stop growing, doubts come in and uncertainty about different issues. From there it goes on, we start talking about, well, if only I had done that, if only... I hadn't done that, and I start, regrets start being birthed in my life. Now, regrets go on. They take on a power in our life that takes over. If only I hadn't gone through that experience. If only that hadn't happened to me. If only I'd done it differently. The if-onlys in my life. 
When we lose our doubt and certainty in Jesus Christ, our hope in Jesus Christ, our doubts and uncertainties take on a stronger stance in our lives. And then other things seem to happen. Stuff that opens wounds in relationships. When my relationship with God is not in sync, then my relationship with others tends to open wounds that hurt rather than heal. So are these just indicators? And then stuff that stirs up agitation in my spirit. Do you get agitated? Little things make you agitated? You can't settle? You start getting tetchy? No one can say anything? And this is where it comes down to, when the peace that God has given me is not the stronger element in my life. But it goes on from there. When peace is not the stronger element in my life, it takes over and we end up saying to ourselves, I've failed. I have failed. And I think you know, some of us here this morning, would, at the worst times in our lives have taken on that stance, I've failed. What more could I have done to do that? To make it better. And so we live with the regrets. The next step is the most dangerous. It's like a brick wall, and it says, I must try harder. I must try harder. Well, we must. That's, that's the food of life, isn't it? To have ambition and to do well and to do the best in everything that we do. To do things as God would have us do them. That's right. I must try harder. But it's when we come to the point of failure and saying I must try harder is the dangerous place to be. And I believe that God by his spirit here this morning, wants to deliver you from that place, I must try harder. Because this is what Paul was all about with this business of going back to the Old Testament law. Come on, there's more to Jesus Christ. You've got to add your bit as well. You've got to do your best to improve your Christian life. And it can't be done. We have to rest solely on what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's a perfect resting in what Jesus has done for us, a holding on to what he's done for us. So I just want to challenge you this morning, this is something that keeps cropping up. I've failed in my life, I must really try harder the next time round. I just want to say to you this morning, like Paul said to these people here, God sent his son... We want to read it in verse 4. God sent his son to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. The full rights of sons. The full rights of sons. What are the full rights of sons? It's all my rights legally. It's all my rights experientially as a son 
What a wonderful place to be. Jesus has brought us so that we might... God sent his son that we might have the full rights of sons. We read, we receive what the Roman world used to call it, the sonship. It was a legal term. It now means that you have received the legal status of son to all that God wants you to have. You have an inheritance. You have something to receive from me that you couldn't get anywhere else only by my giving it to you. You've now received the, the, and there was a definite article in front of it, the sonship, the sonship. It was a legal term used. It was like a wealthy, childless landowner who took one of his slaves and he said, I want that slave to be my son. And so he paid the price and he went through all the legal transactions to make sure that that slave was not now a slave any longer, but now a son. He said, we've now been transferred from slaves. And Paul was looking at the Jewish people under the law. They were slaves to it and transferring them in legal status to, was it he, Paul said? The full rights of sonship. The full rights. Not anything less. The full rights. So the, person, the man who was now a slave would walk the streets dressed definitely. He would walk the streets with his held high. There was no certain time for him to be back at night. He had the freedom to come and go. The freedom to come and go. He was now a son, not a slave. And when we become enslaved to things like, I must try harder because I failed, then we're still slaves, as Paul uses that phrase. He says, you're slaves. He said, God wants you to have the full rights of sonship. The full rights of sonship. It's like this. The gospel we received, God welcomes us as heroes. As if we had accomplished extraordinary deeds. That's how Tim Keller puts it. When we receive Jesus Christ, it's not, oh, come, I'll do some work on you and you'll be better. Look what I can do for you. The full understanding is then when God receives us, he receives us as heroes who've accomplished extraordinary deeds. And you know the most extraordinary thing we can do is when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's so simple. But God counts it so, such a high thing as the most important thing in the whole universe for a person to believe in Jesus Christ who gave his life for them that it's the most extraordinary thing that you've ever done. And God welcomes us as heroes. What a place to be. What a wonderful gospel. What a marvellous thing God has done for us to give us the full rights of sons because of Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul's having anguish in his heart for them. He says, look, you're losing out on your inheritance, lads. There's so much more. There is so much more. 
So our inheritance is not a prize for doing good. It's a gift from God. It's a wonderful gift from God. So I believe God wants to just remind us, you know, let's enjoy the full rights as sons of God. In verse 5, we read something else. Not only has God sent his son, but in verse 5 it says, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So God's done two things here. He's not only sent his son, but he sent the spirit of his son for a specific thing. Whereas God sent his son to give us the legal state of being an heir, God sent his spirit that we might experience the trueness and wonder of that relationship. And being a true son of God, and I take in the female gender here as well because that's an important thing. It's that as sons of God, we need to understand this relationship that we have with the Father. And it's God's Holy Spirit that now helps us develop this relationship between the fun, the Son and us being and the Father, us being the sons of God and the Father. The trueness and wonder of that relationship. I just want to read you some things about the work of God's Spirit. God sent the Spirit. Parallels verse 4, God sent his Son. The Son's purpose was secure for us the legal status of our sonship. By contrast, the Spirit's purpose is to secure the actual experience of it. The actual experience of it. This is not like the work of the Son. The work of the Son brings us an objective legal condition that is ours whether we feel it or not. But this work of the Spirit is not like that at all. The Spirit brings us a radically subjective experience. What are its marks? Its characteristics. And these are some ways how we understand this relationship. First, the Spirit leads us to call out Abba, Father. It talks about a Greek word here. And he said it's a very strong word. That means rending loud cry. And it refers to a deep, profound passion and feeling. A deep, profound passion and feeling. You know, there's something that should exist between fathers and sons, and that's this strong passion and feeling. You know, I went to bed very upset this week, and in tears, actually, because of that little boy that lost its life. They were so cruel to him. So I can understand people being cruel to elderly people, but I cannot understand... I don't agree with it, my... You know, we're all getting that way, and we don't... We don't we don't, want, we don't want any cruelty. But, but that, been having, being part of running an old people's home, I can understand it. You can understand it too, can't you? Yeah. And one home in Herne Bay, it was all in the paper once that one elderly person had got the other one up against the wall by the throat like this, you see. So that's one elderly person to another elderly person, you see. So, but, um, but I can understand that, but I cannot understand I cannot understand that cruelty. A father and son is a 
It's not just special relationship. And here Paul uses this wonderful thing. There's a deep, profound passion and feeling. Crying out, a loud cry. In the hearts of many children, that's crying out. You know, who's my dad? Where is he? It's long to meet him. Many fathers are looking for their children. They wish they hadn't done it. But they just long to put their arms around them, to love them, because they realize they've made a mistake. This father-son thing is such a deep thing. And as Jesus brings us into the relationship with God, it's something beyond comprehension, something beyond understanding. But when we experience it, it's amazing. It's amazing. Second, the Spirit calls out, refers to our prayer life. Just as a child does not prepare speeches to his or her parents, so Christians experience this work of the Spirit, find a great spontaneity and reality in prayer. Praying is no longer mechanical or formal, but filled with warmth, passion, and freedom. Where are you with your prayer life? Where am I with my prayer life? Has it become distant? or difficult maybe we just God wants to take away the mechanics of it and give you the heart of the passion for the father just talk to someone like you really know them just talk to someone like you really feel and understand because that's the way God speaks to us praying is no longer mechanical or formal but filled with warmth passion and freedom. God doesn't want us to say set prayers. In actual fact, what is prayer? I keep asking myself that the question. I know, I know what Daniel did, and I know what Paul did, and I know what people did. And in prayer, a special relationship develops between you and God. But I know my own prayer life. I just want it revolutionised. I don't want it to be cold, hard and formal. I want those moments of enjoying God and talking to him and saying how wonderful the cucumber's tendril is, and, which I do. And I find that the most amazing thing about prayer, just talk to him about his wonders. The spirit cries out. God has given us his spirit to cry out in prayer. Thirdly, the phrase calls out connotes a sense of God's real presence. Just as a child calls out automatically to the nearby daddy when there's a problem or a question. That brings it down to a more earthy level, doesn't it? Just crying out to God, you know? I know Helen's researched many testimonies just lately, just crying out to God for something, and God's answered in prayer. Prayer is not this formal thing, it's actually actually an extension of my relationship with God, that I can actually speak to him like I'm someone I know so well 
and call him father. I like that, don't you? A child calls out automatically to the nearby daddy when there's a problem or a question. So Christians experiencing the work of the Spirit feel the remarkable reality of nearness to God. There's a fourth one. Abba, which is a baby talk word. I love this one. Abba, which is a baby talk word. Uh, different preachers have used different words. You know, it's like dad or papa or whatever. But I like the phrase, it's baby talk word. How often have we tried to pray with special words? Have you tried to pray with special I have, several times. You know, the, the time I feel most excited when I'm praying is when my words flow. And then God reminds you, it's not about your words, mate. He said, that's just you getting excited about your freedom to speak. But it says, fourth, Abba, which is baby talk, meaning Papa or Daddy. Signifies a confidence of love, assurance of welcome, just as a young child simply assumes that a parent loves them and is there for them and never doubts the security and openness of Daddy's strong arms so Christians can have an overwhelming boldness and certainty that God loves them endlessly. God sent his spirit into our hearts, which cries out, cries out, Abba Father. Abba Father. Paul said, don't go back, go forward. You know, there's a barrage of verses in the Bible which talk about the growing Christian. I'll just read you some of them. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow. I think that's an important point, isn't it? Our hunger for the Bible and what's written in it, as we read it, will grow. Simple, isn't it? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And it talks about worrying of getting in this life when we're either in need or we just want something. God says, no, get your priorities right first. Seek first the kingdom of God. And he said, all, that, all these things will be added unto you. What a promise that is, isn't it? It's almost saying, you know, if you're hungering after the wrong, if you're hankering after the wrong things, you won't get the right thing. And sometimes our attention is taken off what we can have in God through Christ that we're seeking in other things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Paul talks about being transformed into his likeness. Here's a picture of Steve when he comes back from holiday being transformed in some way or the other. The hair's moved and all the rest of it, and he's aged a bit. But it's been transformed, you see. Well, the Bible talks about us being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Do we sort of appreciate that that process is going on for us? Are we growing? 
as it were. Paul said, don't go back, go forward. That's the underlying message of what we've been reading. Don't go back, go forward. He who begun a good work in me will bring it to completion. The God's doing a work in us. These are just scattered Bible verses. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, that's a scary one, isn't it? Work out your salvation. You've been telling me not not to have an effort here, not to do anything. No, but that's the sense of responsibility, isn't it? We love him because he first loved us. And we understand with respect and understanding the depth of that, what God has done for us. And so in our way, we work it out with Jesus, knowing his power in our lives. And this last one, which I'd like you to read with me, which is in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 14. It's within a similar situation. Um, Paul has been talking about evil teachers and he's talking about watch out for dogs, men who do evil and mutilators of the flesh, talking about the circumcision. And then in verse 7, he goes on to say, because Paul himself had gone through all that, the rigours of the Jewish law. He'd gone through all that. And earlier in our Galatian reading, Paul said, become as me. I was that. But I've gone, I've left it behind now. And now he said, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, and that is by faith. That's what we've been doing in Galatians. This is it. Verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on, don't go backwards, go forwards, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It wasn't many years ago that... Dear Ben White came and preached on that word, that. I want to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of for me. That was my receiving the full rights of sons. The full rights of sons, being heirs of God. Being heirs of God with an inheritance something which doesn't diminish in value but increases in value for us. I want to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
Is that our resolve this morning? Do we actually want to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us? Or is life just going to go on? You know, for me, bearing my regrets and, 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 and wallowing in my sorrows and, and coming to the point that I'm a failure, my life is nothing. I must try harder. I believe God wants us this morning to receive of his grace. Something that I can't add anything to, but just, just receive it. Accepted. God welcomes us as heroes who've done extraordinary things. God takes us as we are, just as we are, from one degree of glory to another. Paul also refers our growth. Started with glory and ends up with glory. That's the process of being a Christian, is growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your, your grace and your mercy, Lord. So often we want to try harder, and we fail because we try harder. Lord, we're in this vicious circle. Lord Jesus, you know all about it. Paul knew about it. He said, what I want to do, I don't do. And the things I do, I don't want to do. And I'm frustrated by my life. But I look to Jesus. And thank you so much for him. Jesus, you've done it all for me. Everything. Now God looks at me like he looks at you. This is my son in whom I am well pleased and I find all my delight that satisfies my heart completely. Nothing could be better between you and me. You are mine forever. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you.